You're listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. In this week's final lesson of the Jonah module, Jonah is Angry, Philip Edwards will consider the relevance of the book of Jonah in the believer's life and the important lessons we can learn from it. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching and please remember to head on over to ariseministry.org.uk where you can study our past modules, see our future modules and see the other ministries we have to offer. You can also now follow us on social media at Arise Ministry UK. And now over to Philip Edwards for today's teaching. Welcome to part four, the last part in our study of the book of Jonah. Uh, In a while we'll read chapter four together. Uh, But uh, before then, just let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your presence. You've promised always to be amongst us and with us. And uh, Lord, we just thank you because we are so dependent on you uh, showing us things so we understand more clearly your precious word. Uh, Lord, we open ourselves up to you to teach us, both teacher and student, Lord, that we would receive from you. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. Well, we're going to look at chapter four this evening, and uh, we've got a change of voice this evening. Uh, Daphne's going to come and read to us uh, the fourth chapter of Jonah, the final one in this series. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Have you any right to be angry? Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head, to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said. I am angry enough to die. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this vine. Though you did not tend it or make it grow, it sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? 
Okay, what I'll do is, I'll do this, I did uh, each time, and that's to go through an overview of the chapter that we've just had read to us, and then we'll settle on certain parts of that and bring out some teaching. The final chapter then, it brings all the pieces together. Jonah is fuming mad. He utters this second prayer. Well, it's any time we talk to God, it's prayer. That's what he means when he says that. It's, he's like having a conversation with God. He first tells God why he ran away in chapter 1. It was not because he was afraid, rather because he knew God was so merciful. Well, that's great, isn't it? Jonah actually quotes God's own description of himself from the book of Exodus and he throws it back into God's face as an insult. He said he knew that God was compassionate and would find some way to forgive these horrible Ninevites. You can hear the disgust in Jonah's voice. Jonah then cuts off the conversation and he prays that God would kill him on the spot. This is the second time he's asked God to kill him on the spot. He would rather die than live with a God who forgives his enemies. Fortunate for Jonah, God does not comply and simply asks if Jonah's anger is justified. Jonah ignores the question and goes outside of the city to camp on a nearby hill to see what might happen. The Ninevites might repent of their repentance and get roasted after all. What happens next is very odd. God provides this vine plant to shade him from the sun and this makes him quite happy. The first time he's ever been happy in the whole story. But when God sends a tiny worm to eat up the plant and so Jonah loses his shade and there is the heat of the sun, Jonah asks again that God would kill him. So God again asks if Jonah's anger is justified. And Jonah barks back, absolutely, just let me die. And these are Jonah's last words in the story. God's final words are what concludes the book. He says that this whole vine incident was an attempt to get through to Jonah. Jonah got all concerned and emotional over the vine and only enjoyed for a day. And God asked Jonah, aren't humans a bit more valuable than vines? I mean, isn't it okay if God might feel the same concern for Nineveh that's full of thousands of people who have lost their way and also the cows? And that is how the book ends, with God asking Jonah for permission to show mercy to his enemies. And what is Jonah's answer? The story does not say, because that is not the point. What was Jonah's response then to God's mercy? He has been amazingly merciful and full of grace to the Ninevites. We've looked at how awful they were. What a terrible people. Jonah is absolutely livid. He's angry with God. He's so angry. It's very wrong. He can't abide the fact that God has been so merciful and gracious.
he prays to God, well, sort of a prayer, but he lets him have it, doesn't he? He just tells God exactly what he thinks of him. He says, you're gracious and you're compassionate, accusing him of those things. <laughs> it's absolutely comical. Well, we know it's comical. It's been comical all the way through, really. He wants God to take his life. In verse 2, he describes God quoting Exodus 34 and 6. It says this, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, who is slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Well, he should have known that, shouldn't he? He's quoting the very scriptures and he's so angry that God is who God says he is. But the truth is, Israel only exists because of the mercy and grace of God. Any cursory reading of the Old Testament shows us over again and again and again how God, if he wasn't this, would have simply got rid of them, wiped them out, had nothing to do with them. So the fact that he even exists in a nation is because of God's great mercy and great compassion. He is so angry with God because he's being kind and gracious. What a crazy book this is. It really is crazy. Jonah is this comical, ridiculous figure yet again. We, we don't have any sympathy for him, do we? I don't think so. In fact, we're laughing at him. It's so ridiculous. It's so silly. He calls himself a prophet and he's completely in reverse to every other prophet that we've ever read about. Here we see the scandalous grace of God. Have you ever heard of it in those terms before? It's scandalous. Some have even suggested it's the dark side of God, if God could ever have a dark side. I don't think he could. But the idea, the scandal of the liberality of God's grace, he is showing it to this terrible nation of people. Jesus reveals this side of God to us in a parable, doesn't he? Remember the man who had the vineyard, the landowner, and uh, he needs labourers because it's the harvest season. So he goes out at six o'clock in the morning and he, he hires some labourers and he promises to pay them a denarius for the day. And then three hours later he goes and gets some more labourers and then uh, 12 o'clock he gets some more and then five in the afternoon, or three o'clock rather, and then five in the afternoon where there's only one hour left for work, he goes to get more labourers. And then he pays them. And he pays them all the same. And of course, those who've worked for the 12 hours are angry. What are they angry about? Well, it's unfair. No, he wasn't being unfair. He promised to pay them a denarius, and a denarius is what they got. What he, they're angry about is the fact that he was so generous and gracious to those that did less. We can be a bit like that, can't we, if we're not careful? 
it's unfair. No, you're really criticising the generosity and the grace of God. We're happy when God is gracious to us, generous to us, merciful to us. But we're angry when he's generous and gracious to the people who we despise. Ooh, that's a strong word. Why is he so kind to those people? Because he's kind to everyone. He's gracious to all. But they don't deserve it, as though you did deserve it. Jonah's motivation is understandable. Even when you read that parable of Jesus, it's sort of understandable. But that only shows you where your heart is, doesn't it? See, that's what the Word of God does all the time. It just reflects you. It lets you have a look at your soul without pointing a finger. It gives you the liberty of reading something and have the Word of God speak to you. God will now try three times to bring him around. If God can't bring him around, no one can. But God is full of hope as well. He believes he can. So his first attempt, we read it there in verse 4. God says to Jonah, let's talk about this then. Is it right that you're angry because I showed mercy to the Ninevites? He says this actually in words, have you any right to be angry? Jonah's response is he ignores God. God's willing to have a chat with him about it, to discuss it, to see why he thinks like he does. He wants nothing to do with this. He can't respond to God's inquiry. He sits down, it says, and he makes himself a shelter. And he looks to see what will happen next in the city. Perhaps they will repent of their repentance. <laughs> it's funny, isn't it? Quite comical. He is a comical man. This is not the first time in the story that Jonah has ignored God. I think he's angry, and we've looked at this previously. God played a trick on him, didn't he? In chapter 3, God told him to tell the people the city will be overturned, remember? And he thinks, good, God is going to overturn them, destroy them. Maybe he's thinking, like Sodom and Gomorrah, he will bring his judgment on the city. And this is what he wants, for God to destroy the enemy. But God didn't intend to do that ever. Instead of overturning it, he turned it over. He turned them over. He allowed them to have a transformation in their heart. The Ninevites were turned over to God, turned away from their old way of thinking. What Jonas intended for evil, God intended it for good. We've read that somewhere else in the Bible, haven't we? 
See, the enemy is always intending things for evil, but God can turn it around in a moment, and what was intended for evil becomes good. That was his first attempt to turn Jonah, to win him, to help him to understand. But he doesn't. So he comes back a little bit later. He sees the discomfort of this poor man. The sun is beating down on him and he's sitting there out in the open. He's built some sort of a shelter over him, but it's not really doing the job too well. So God is so merciful. He, he gives this vine. This must be the fastest growing vine ever in the history of the world because it, he just plants it one night and by the next morning it's completely covered. I don't know much about gardening, I do assure you of that, but I don't think things grow that fast. I know in warmer countries things do and there are like two seasons where we only get one. But this thing just grew straight over him. And for the first time in the story, it says he was happy. Well, it says actually he was very happy, it says in my Bible. It's just a leafy plant, but it's enough to give him shade from the burning sun. But the next day, God sends a tiny worm and this must be the fastest destruction of a plant as well, because I don't think, well, I know that Jesus cursed a tree once and it was gone by the next day, but this worm, he starts to eat it and the plant is gone by the next day, completely shriveled. So I think Jonah's only appreciated the plant for something like 24 hours, but now the plant has gone. So the scorching sun rises in the morning the plant is destroyed and Jonah is suffering again under the heat. What does he say? Yeah, you got it. Oh, I wish I was dead. What is wrong with this man? It would be better for me to die, he said, than to live. God then asks him the same question again with a little twist to it. He says, is it right for you to be angry? And he adds this, about a plant. Maybe I could understand you were angry about the Ninevites and you wish to die, but now you're angry about a plant and you wish to die. Is your anger unto death about a plant truly justified? Is it legitimate that you can wish to die because of that? It's a good question. It should shake him out of his irrational response, shouldn't it? It's like, oh, I'm being a bit stupid here. Perhaps I need to listen to God. No. He's got to the point where you see he's beyond reason. Is it reflecting something about us? This is what it's trying to do, you see. Can we get to a point where we go beyond reason? with God. We say, no, I don't want to hear, I don't want to hear, I don't want to hear. Either God stops speaking because he doesn't want to get on our nerves, or it's just gone beyond reason. And so he leaves us, live beyond reason. This man is living beyond reason. But God, it appears 
he doesn't give up. He sees some hope in this man. And why doesn't he give up? Because he's gracious and he's slow to anger and he's compassionate and he's abounding in loving kindness. If he sees just the glimmer of hope, God will not give up. A smoke in flax, it says, doesn't it? It can blow it into life again. It can flourish again. He is committed to Jonah as much as he is committed to the Ninevites. He's going to work this one out with him. So he comes back a third time. Listen, Jonah, you've been concerned about this plant. You have shown extreme emotion about it, both happiness and sadness. You didn't care for the plant. You didn't make it grow. You can't claim any emotional attachment to it because it came up overnight and it died overnight. It hasn't been in your life very long. So let's say your emotions for this plant, are they justified? Should I not have the same emotions in turn for something a little more significant, like a huge city full of 120,000 people who can't tell their right hand from their left hand, let alone all the animals that live there? You're being unreasonable, surely you are. The story ends, doesn't it? It stops there. We close the book. What does this last question that God asked him actually mean? In God's first attempt, he tries to expose his foolishness in thinking the way that he is about the Ninevites thinking in this angry way. He tries to expose that, but he's not interested in that. So then he goes and tries to expose the ridiculousness of his anger in the plant that has withered, and he's simply not interested in that at all. But for the first time in the story, Jonah cares about something else more than himself. The blessed plant. It's ridiculous. The whole thing is ridiculous. He's concerned about it. Yes, because it's providing some shelter for him. But nonetheless, he's concerned for it. There's a little corner in his heart that he cares for something else and not himself. See, God can see inside of us. If there's hope, he'll go for it. If there's a space, he'll work there. God says, I can work with that. I can work in this man's heart. Okay, you have a soft spot in your heart for this little plant. It's ridiculous but you're thinking about something else more than yourself, he says. 
Can't you understand and grant me that I should be concerned about something a little bit more significant? A vast number of people who cannot know their right from their left. Don't you see it? He's appealing to something that is in his heart. What does it mean they didn't know their right hand from their left? Well, it doesn't mean that, does it? Everyone knows their right hand from their left, especially if you're talking to 120,000 people. They can't all be that silly. What it means is when they should have turned to the right, which was the right thing to do, they didn't know it was the right thing and they turned to the left. Or when they should have turned to the left when it was the right thing to do, they found themselves turning to the right. They were just lost. They were confused, as it were. We talk about people being lost. Until we find the Lord, we are lost. Often we think about people lost, lost in eternity, but you're lost in this world, not in the next one. You definitely know where you are in the next one. You're lost in this one. You can't find the Lord. You can't find direction. The Bible describes all of us like this, doesn't it? He says we're sheep who have all gone astray. We don't know where to go. A simple study of sheep shows you this. One goes and they all run in this direction and they run into nothing. They're just following someone who's running in this direction for no real reason at all. God is not excusing the behaviour of these Ninevite people. They're accountable for what they've done. But they're lost and they're misguided. God has the last word. And Jonah has no reply. We don't really care what this silly man thinks, do we? I think we've had enough of him by now. A great little book. I think possibly it, it is the best story, apart from the birth and crucifixion, the best story in Scripture to look at. We've looked at lots of things uh, over the weeks. I've, I've made a list here of the 20 top things we've learned from this little book. So it's a little bit of a recap. And um, I, I found there was a lot more I could have put, but I'm, I'm just going to give you the, the top 20. The first one is that we need to remain open and teachable and try not to be dogmatic. Our understanding of the things of God, they're always limited. If we think we know something, there's always more to learn. There's always more he can show us. So just remain open. Many times we have an opinion about something, but have your opinion open that it might be, you know, changed somewhat. Number two, God really does love his enemies. He really does love them. We've got to get our heads around that because he expects us to love them as well. So what does that mean? When God judges, it's always motivated by love, never revenge, motivated by love only. Spiritual apathy, 
will disconnect us from God completely. If none of this matters, spiritual apathy has got a hold. Everything that we read in here should matter to us. Everything pertaining to God, it should matter. We discovered that our sin affects those around us, not just us. No man is an island. The Word of God, I've said this several times, is a mirror to our soul. It's there to show us what's going on inside of us. We looked at this thing called severe mercy, and we don't want any of that in our lives, for sure. We saw that the first rule in reading the Bible is its context, otherwise we're going to get in a mess. Number nine, sometimes we suffer because of the actions of others. And we've got to be alive to that. And God is not our genie in the bottle. He won't lift us out of every situation. He is a delivering, saving God, but sometimes he's a God who walks, walks through things with us to develop our grace and faith. Pain can be God shouting at us. Number 12, God can never abandon his people or give up on them. He can't do that. 13, our happiness is not God's first concern. Believing is not something we do with only our mind. That's mental assent. That's not believing. Believing is when our whole spirit, soul and body is involved in something. So believing will always lead to an action and yet we've turned it into a mental exercise in the way we think. Repentance is a turning around and heading in a new direction. It's something that Jonah never did. Love and judgment are not opposite but they're working partners. God's grace is scandalous. So scandalous. There might be a Jonah in every one of us or a part of him. Despite whatever we do or don't do, God's purpose in the world will run their course. Isn't that amazing? Could he have done more to stop the purposes of God? Well, he tried his hardest, but God had his way. And this one, last one, God can save people in spite of us. That's reassuring, isn't it? We can all feel guilty of when we've missed the mark, but with God, no mark is missed. He saves who he's saving, and that's just the end of that one. We'll be back after the break to finish off this wonderful little book. We're going to look at the point of the book. What's the point of it? What's the point of the book? I think it's trying to mess with us. Uh, <laughs> it's a funny thing to say about a, a book in the Bible, but it really does mess with our heads uh, as we have to think our way through it all. The questions that it asks, perhaps it's like all Bible books, 
They're addressed at us. We think it's addressing the issues in the book that we're reading because it all reflects back to us. Are you okay that God loves everyone? Hmm. We must be honest. Are you okay with that? That God actually loves everyone? See, in that question, that's what I mean by the word of God mirrors something in our soul. You've got to think, well, if God does, then I must, because I'm built after the character and nature. I'm being transformed to the image of Christ. So if God loves everyone, Jesus loves everyone, so I've got to love everyone. In Jonah, we see the worst part of our own character magnified. None of us are as awful as Jonah. <laughs> it's magnified for us, isn't it? But we have to take it down and look into our own hearts. When we see it, it should generate humility and gratitude, really, in God. That God would love his enemies is amazing. That God would love those that have been vehemently against him and opposed to him. When you think of his great power and majesty, and he puts up with the Jonah in us. That's what it teaches us, perhaps. And so this strange little book, it actually becomes a message of good news, of the wideness of the grace of God. Some Christians live with such a narrow God, you know what I mean, as though they mustn't say or do the wrong thing. But if this book says anything to us, it should cause us to go, oh, it's so wide, his grace and his love. We're not trying to live like Jonah or even like the Ninevites. We're, we want to walk, but we mustn't lose sight of the width of his great majesty and mercy. The message of Jonah must be the scandalous grace of God. The book's not about Jonah at all, is it? It's about you. That's what it's about. You must ask, how am I living in response to God's questions that he poses me in this book? Jonah, he's a ridiculous character. Has he grasped the scandalous grace of God, or has he refused to grasp it and won't grasp it? Is he so off that he can't even see it because he doesn't want to see it? This is what challenges me. For the things that I don't want to see, I can't see. Therefore, I want to be as open as I possibly can to what God wants to teach me. God loves my enemies, and I like to think I haven't got me as much as God loves me. But I must be careful that I don't deceive myself. 
See, I can walk into a room and thinking, oh, I don't think I'll talk to that person, I'll talk to that person. See, even a slight thing like that shows something. I got the impression that if Jesus walked into the room, he would walk to the very, very person that I would think that's going to be hard work tonight. Because he wouldn't think like that. He would see something that needed to be addressed or someone needed to be encouraged or, and that's the one he would go to. Whereas often we steer clear of those sorts of people. When that sinks into us, see, we're struggling with our issues of forgiveness that have hurt us over the past. And maybe there's still some stuff that has to go on in the inside. It's this, this little story that really impacts us. Are you as forgiving as you think you are? Do you really walk in loving everyone in the same way that God does? <laughs> the Ninevites, they're horrible people, aren't they? I mean, that week when we looked at them, well, I had to look at how horrible they were to make the case. There's nothing nice about them at all. And yet God loves them very clearly. But in that, in this story, who is the most hard-hearted and hateful person? <laughs> See, it's not the Ninevites at all. They were blind. In some ways, they had all the excuses in the world why they were like they were. They didn't know, and what they were doing was proving to be very successful, so you would carry on doing what you were doing. But this man was the prophet of God. He was actually quoting scripture more than once, and yet he was so opposed to God. God is gently trying to show us what's happening here. He's not calling us out. He doesn't do this. He lets us judge ourselves, or he lets the word of God judge us. The word of God says that God doesn't want to judge us. Jesus doesn't want to judge us either. He wants the word of God to judge us. So as we read it every time we pick it up, we must allow it to do that. We must examine it in such a way that it has the ability to speak to us. What is this trying to say to me? If I can read it and it doesn't say anything to me or point anything out to me, I'm either perfect or I'm blind and I'm not open to seeing what it wants to say to me. We're part of the covenant people of God, just like Jonah. Yeah, we can be as hard-hearted and broken as he is. He's broken, you see, as a person. We don't know much about his life, but he's a broken person. That's encouraging, isn't it, that God would choose him to be a prophet anyway, in his brokenness, in the same way that he calls us. God loves our enemies, and he wants us to love them too. 
this is a core issue, really, isn't it, in the gospel message, that we love our enemies. In Luke 6, 27 and 28, this is Jesus speaking. He says, but I tell you who hear me, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray to those, or pray for those who will treat you. Really? Very noble, admirable words, really. Are we doing it? Could you make a little list of the people that you struggle with? I didn't say you hated them or you had to forgive them. I just said people that you struggle with. And ask yourself, how often do I pray for these people that I struggle with? Surely that's what Jesus is saying. Oh, we don't even think about them. Perhaps we should think about them. God is definitely thinking about the Ninevites. He's got them in his mind. It's not only the, the nation of Israel he's thinking about, he's using the nation of Israel to touch these other nations. And how many other nations in the world did he reach out to and try to touch them using his own prophets? Because he was reaching out to all men. God wants us to be fully reconciled to himself and to everyone else. Fully reconciled. So there's nothing between us at all. Live at peace as much as life in you, he said. Sometimes living at peace with somebody doesn't lie with us. It lies with them. But as far as we're concerned, we do everything that we can do to live at peace with all men. Jonah, you don't get to stand on the high ground and determine who God shows his grace to. I'm sorry, that's not your job. See, we've all made ourselves enemies of God. We all have stories where we've hurt people. We've let people down, we've wounded people, we've caused them pain in their lives. They've caused us pain as well. How do we get to this place that we can move forward and remove all the pain that might exist between us? The place where hurting stops is at the cross. There's a community of us that live at the cross, or there should be. <laughs> when you take communion on a Sunday, that's the communion of people who are meeting at the base of the cross in a symbolic way. And we are to forgive and love each other there at the cross. Uh, not because we're better than anyone else, but we've got a glimpse of God's grace and his compassion. When we look at the cross, we see his grace and compassion. And it's there at the base of the cross where we need to. That's why he says, if you have aught against don't come to the, the altar, as it were. Sort that thing out and then come back because we want to have this grace, compassion and communion with one another. What chapter 4 does is the same thing that Jesus does in his teaching. He deconstructs, if I might use that word, 
what an enemy is. What is an enemy? As with Jonah, we see the enemy as the bad guys in the way he tells the story. Nineveh are the bad guys, but he's the bad guy. So God wants to say, you're looking at the bad guys, but you're the bad guy. If you're not reaching out to them, you are the bad guy, not them. Of course, Nineveh are bad, but he said, Jonah, you're the bad guy, not them. It's you. What do you do with toxic people? You understand what I mean by that? People are really hard and difficult, just so prickly, just so, just so difficult. You struggle with them. It's all right to struggle with toxic people. Rick Warren, he called them EGRs, extra grace required. And that's true, isn't it? You know, some people, it's just a joy to be with them. You just, just harmonise with them. Other people, you're thinking, is this going to take a little bit more grace, God? But he expects us not to run away from toxic people, but to be close to them. Because he wants to work in us and through us to show himself to them through us. See, no one else can do it like you because they might feel about you just like you feel about them. But by you showing them the grace of God, it can melt their hearts, cause something wonderful to happen. If we look at someone, part of the human nature and we see the bad that they did to us or to somebody else, we reduce them to that thing that they've done. We reduce their humanity to that thing. So if a person has lied about you, we call them a liar. Do you understand? You've reduced the whole of their humanity to a mistake that they made. But the truth is, there might be lots and lots and lots of things that are very wonderful and gracious in their lives, but because the lie is the thing that has affected you, they're liars. No, they're not liars. Don't call them that. They lied, and they lied to you, but we've got to see beyond that. See, we call them liars, and then we paint ourselves in the opposite picture, don't we? We're so brilliant. We never lie. We're so good, but they're liars. <laughs> we all contribute to why the world is such a terrible place. All of us, we do. In lots of different ways. The line of good and evil runs through us. We like to think good, the line of good runs through us, but good and evil, it runs through us at the same time. That surely is the point of the cross, that we come to the cross and there 
we receive grace and mercy because of who we are, the line of error that is running through us. That's why we went to the cross. If there was only good, we wouldn't need the cross, would we? But we do. The story then is not about God and Nineveh. It's about God and his people. The story wasn't written for the Ninevites. It was written for us, that we might read it and that God might speak to us. He's trying to show his own people how messed up they are. And because as we read through the Old Testament, we see how messed up they were. And we say, oh, I'm glad I wasn't like that, or I'm not like them. But we deceive ourselves. We really do. How much they need his grace, like all of us, operating in our lives. He brings Jonah into contact with his enemy. Now, that's not very nice, is it? See, Jonah would never have gone to Nineveh, ever. We know that. In fact, when he's asked, told, commanded to go, he runs the other way. He would have gone nowhere near his enemy, cursed him off the planet. But God makes him go to his enemy. Oh, you're not going to like this bit. He makes him go because he wants to deal with something in his life. Jonah is so important to him, he wants to heal him of his attitude, and so he makes him go. And in the same way he wants to heal us of our attitudes, he makes us go to places where we don't want to go, to deal with things we never want to deal with. And when we're confronted with it, we react like he does, violently. We want to run away from it because we don't want to have to deal with it. He takes him where he doesn't want to go to teach him something. Is there someone difficult in your life? <gasps> That's where God might take you. Of course, where else is he going to take you? To deal with those issues. Are there people that we might say, if that person wasn't around, I would be a far better Christian. I wonder how many husbands have said that about their wives, or wives about their husbands, or parents about their children, or children about their parents. It's a lie. It's a lie. The fact that they're in your life is the most wonderful thing that God could ever have done for you. Because it's dealing with the issues within you. It's those that are closest to us that hurt us the most. And often it's those we want to distance ourselves from and it's those that we're pressurised into meeting because it's there God deals with us. Could it be that person in your life is there by divine invitation? For you to grow and experience the wonderful grace of God, 
to love your enemies, to work with those who despise you and treat you badly. And this grace I'm talking about, we can deceive ourselves with a thing called mental assent. Oh, I forgive them. I love them. Well, let's just check this out. Just see how you get on living with them then. See how this works out. See, God's grace doesn't only flow through our head. It flows through our whole being. We believe with our whole being. We live a life of faith with our whole being. We love with our being. Sometimes we love with our mouth. John says you don't just love with your mouth and your tongue. You love with the whole of your being. That's why your body is so important to you. That's how you live the Christian life, with this body. Not with your head or your mouth. The whole of you lives it, participates in the life. Loving our enemies is seeing the brokenness in all of us. That's it. I don't expect you to do this for one minute. Make a list of your enemy's bad points. Then ask yourself, have I ever done this? Of course you have. Could it be that this person is invited into your life that you might understand the deep love and the grace that God is extending to you. I gave you a list of 20. Can I add another one to it? Those difficult people in your life were probably sent by God to do you good. Amen. Amen. The Lord bless you. You've been listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching and please remember to head on over to ariseministry.org.uk if you would like to partner with us by making a secure online donation. You can also now follow us on social media at Arise Ministry UK. Arise Ministry, a living legacy.